you may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. at the pits of Le Mans, the 24-hour circuit of endurance. But then almost at once you've got a very difficult corner. It's a bit blind and you can't see far around it. Then you're accelerating again under the first Dunlop Bridge and down the hill and into the S's, two very fast left and right handers. You're really using your brakes and all the road, and I mean all the road, over the white lines on both sides and right up alongside the banks. Rouge. It's a very slow corner actually with a sandbank there on the left, trying to keep out of it. So now we're starting on the Mulsanne Strait. This is the real straight, although there's a kink at each end. And this is where the speeds really go up, over 150 miles an hour now, and we're not even flat out yet. And yet you can see the way the white lines flash past. Now we're getting on towards the halfway down the straight and approaching maximum speed, over 200 miles an hour get darn difficult here at night, particularly when you can see a couple of red lights ahead and you can't tell whether you're chasing a slow car doing, shall we say, 110 miles an hour, or a really fast one. That is, of course, unless you catch up with it. And during the 24 hours, you will break about 2,500 times. Now, this is a fast 5-litre GT car weighing over 2,000 pounds. And that means that during the race, the brakes will be running at more than 600 degrees centigrade for the whole of the 24 hours, except, of course, during pit stops when I can tell you they get a darn sight hotter than that. Now we're getting near the end of the straight. We're at full bore. And here's the right-hand curve that you take very fast, just before the braking zone. You begin to brake about 500 yards from the corner. You start to come down from about 200 miles an hour plus to 45 or 50. The signaling area there on the right of the corner keeps in touch with the pits right through the race. Slowly round now, with a sandbank on the left. The unlucky ones, of course, shuffling themselves out. Accelerating, and now we're on the third fastest part of the circuit, before the corner they call Indianapolis. Up to about 180 miles an hour here, before breaking slightly for a couple of very fast right-hand curves leading into Indianapolis. Here's the second one. And there you can see the whiteboard at the end marking the right-hand corner. Indianapolis is two corners really, there's this small right first, which you slow for, and then you break hard for this, the main corner. Round Indianapolis. And a very short straight here, accelerating hard before breaking equally hard again for a sharp corner at Arnage. Arnage is another slow right hand up with a sandbank, which for some reason people don't seem to get in as often as the others. Out of Arnage, accelerating, building up for the second fastest part of the track, approaching 190 miles an hour. With a few of these slight curves, some people seem to lift off for them. These are the really dangerous ones there, when you're traveling fast, the track can curve and you don't, and somehow you go straight off. The next is certainly the most difficult section of the circuit, up to 190 in places, and slightly blind before the White House corner. Now here's White House. We go 
aren't accelerating now, all the way up to a new chicane that slows us right down to 50 miles an hour or so before the pits. On the second lap, you may change your braking technique a bit, but you've got to get it right first time, otherwise you just won't come round again. This is McKeel Haggerty, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. So get out there and keep driving all those cool cars. And now... Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Nothing up my sleeve. Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see moi, little old me, here live in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to go to our podcast page, our archive page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you can listen to all the really cool shows from all the legendary, or excuse me, fascinating and legendary guests in motorsports that we've had on the show over the past nine and a half years. We're going in 10. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Anyway, good evening, Tommy. Oh, hello, Robert. Happy uh, Thanksgiving to you. Same to you, my friend. Yeah. And uh, so uh, butter and bread got pardoned, huh? (laughs) Yeah, but they were later subpoenaed by Adam Schiff. (laughs) Okay. There you go. Hey, uh, there's a Trump rally going on in South Florida right now, so that's a good thing. Anyway, having said that, let's uh, get right to it. This... uh, it's been a pretty busy week for me, for moi. Um, I was up in Alabama on two, Wednesday and Thursday last week. I was appraising a very rare car. We'll talk about that in the future uh, once it's out in the open. But at the moment, it's not. And as soon as I got back on Thursday, I uh, it was late in the evening. I went to the car show down there at Goobers and Lubers. Uh, some people call it Steak and Shake or Quaker Steak and Goobers and Lubers and Quaker, something like that down there. And uh, so I was kind of hanging out there. There's a few new cars down there. You know, it's kind of it's kind of nice to see different cars. I always tell people if you have more than one car, bring them out. Don't just always drive the same car. You know, because if you got more than one, that's kind of cool and you're fortunate and uh, share them. You know. At any rate, uh, so we hung out there for a while. I was with my buddy IG. And, uh, of course, he's in the trucks, semis. So uh, one of these days when we go to the next uh, semi show, we'll have IG on. We can talk about uh, trucks, big trucks. We're talking semi trucks. We're talking, like, really big trucks. At any rate, so uh, the next morning I had uh, something scheduled to do, and that kind of uh, fizzled. So I called my good buddy Hank, who's a Ford guy like me. And uh, I said, hey, is that uh, McCacken thing going on this weekend? Now, for all you guys that uh, don't know what McCacken is, and uh, I didn't either, what McCacken is, or what it stands for, is M-C-A-C-N. Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals. And it's a big yearly event that's been going on 11 years now, and it's up in Chicago. Chicago. You know, that's my kind of town. Anyway, and uh, so I was really, really fortunate, because it's like, I love being spontaneous sometimes. Yeah, that's spontaneous, spontaneity. Anyway, and uh, so I was able to book on the world's worst airlines, and I don't mind saying it because they suck, and that's Spirit Airlines. Um, no, no, that's you talk about bus seats. I mean, the, the airplane's even plain, painted yellow, like a bus, except the lousy yellow. And uh, terrible, terrible flight. People are rude, nasty, nickel and dime you. Um, it's just a terrible airline. So I got nothing good to say about them. And I told him, I said, if you keep treating me like doo-doo, I will give you guys really, really negative uh, comments uh, on the radio. Now, I, I can't, uh, uh, whether I get sued over this or not, I, don't, I doubt it. But they, because the consensus is they suck. Okay. I mean, that is just pathetic. Uh, and, but the problem is, is corporate America's got everything screwed up. So it really doesn't matter what airlines. Air, flying these days, and I sometimes fly five, six, seven times a year. And it's just, flying's just gotten to be terrible. It really is. It just, uh, it's miserable. It's crowded. People, there's a, there's a thing called um, flying etiquette. And if you don't understand it, learn it. Google it. 
You know, but some people just don't get it. One of the most annoying things on an airplane, besides getting on board, is when you get off the plane. The plane lands, okay? I generally sit towards the back of the plane because I don't like being bothered. And uh, what amaz- it never ceases to amaze me how the plane lands, it just hits the, 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 the airport there, and everybody's got to stand up, particularly everybody in the back. Now, where are you going? I had one guy sitting next to me, and he sits there and he says, uh, I need to get out. I said, where are you going? He says, well, I need to get out. I said, well, uh, like the doors aren't even open yet? You know, and not to mention the guy was tall, and he was by the window, so he was kind of you know, hunched over. I thought, wow. I mean, I thought for sure we we're going to get in a fist of cups fight here over some of this stuff. It's just ridiculous. So I generally just wait. And sometimes I'm the, you know, depending on where I board, you know, middle of the group sometimes. But on the end, I'm usually the last guy to get off the plane because, you know, I don't, it's no point in rushing yourself. And uh, sit there and relax. In fact, what they should do is what we do in churches. Don't you think, uh, Tommy? They should sit there and, and there should be somebody standing there like the stewardess. And I suggested this. Row one, row two, row three. Let everybody go out like that. Everybody sit tight. That way, you know, you're not dropping luggage on top of somebody or your bags or your carry-on or, you know, I mean, it's, I'm just amazed that there's not brawls on airplanes. But nonetheless, um, so I went to the – I was able to catch the same flight with Hank going up there. And uh, so the Muscle Car and Nash, muscle car and Corvette National, I've got to tell you guys, I go to a lot of shows – I've been to some pretty cool shows, and it's hard to beat Pebble Beach and Amelia Island. Those are the two best shows in the country. SEMA, it's outstanding. Scottsdale's outstanding. But if you're a really true car guy, Google them. Mustang, uh, Muscle Car, and Corvette Nationals. If you are a true dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore muscle car guy, and whether you got pony cars, which are Barracudas, Mustangs, Camaros, Firebirds, Cougars, you know, those are all pony cars. Muscle cars, by rights, really are, and this is where the... They 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 kind of like were conceived. They were big bodied cars with big motors, kind of converted to lightweight. So your lightweight cars, your big Galaxies, your big Mopars, your big Pontiacs, your big Buicks, you know, your big Chevrolets. Those are really muscle cars. Uh, your Coke bottle cars, like your Roadrunners and your Trinos and your Chevelles and your Goats and and GSs and all that stuff. Those are basically intermediate sized cars. They're really not muscle cars, but let's call them muscle cars for lack of uh, something else to call them. But let me tell you something. When I got up there, I know quite a bit about cars, but then I have to know a lot because I do appraisals and stuff. And I know a lot about all kinds of cars because I come from the wrecking yard business. But let me tell you something. Those guys up there, I felt like I was like in a minority. I mean, I knew minuscule compared to these guys. I mean, these guys, if there was a guy up there with a 70 uh, Hemi Cuda, he knew every nut and bolt on that car, every wire, everything. And he didn't know anything about a Chevrolet, he didn't know anything about a Ford, but he knew everything there was to know about that 70 Barracuda. If there was a guy there that had a 60-69 Chevelle Copo car, he knew everything. All the date codes, production numbers, nuts, bolts, all that kind of stuff, wires. I mean, every detail. He knew everything there was about that. I mean, there was the. this was probably the one show, and I can't rant and rave about it enough, where there was truly, truly professional guys there. There were probably five, 600 cars there. And uh, kudos to uh, Bob Astra, or Astor, I think that's his name. He's the gentleman that, that founded uh, the Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals. It actually started out as a Corvette show, and then it just kind of expanded from that. But there was pretty, some pretty serious stuff. If you go to my Facebook page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, I mean, I don't care whether you had, uh, and I broke it down into groups. I mean, you had the Ford guys there. You had the Pontiac guys there. You had the Camaro guys there. You had the Chevelle guys there. You had the Torino guys there. You had uh, the Mopar guys were there. You had the, the wing cars were there. You had gassers there. Countless vendors. I mean, it was just a totally, totally, totally amazing trip. And I got to tell you, I am going to probably put that on my bucket list for next year. But it's kind of hard because it comes right after SEMA. But in fact, there was a lot of cars that were at SEMA were there. And so super, super, super quality cars. And everybody's a car guy and everybody gets, gets it. And here was the interesting thing. The age group of the guys that were there, I got to tell you, it was probably mm, 40s to 80-year-old guys. You hardly saw any young kids there. Unlike SEMA, by comparison, SEMA, there was a lot of 20, 30-year-old guys there because SEMA's kind of like a little bit more of a trendy show. And so if you're into the tuners, if you're into the hot rods, if you're into resto mods, if you're into all that kind of stuff, a lot of that stuff was there. But these guys were serious. These were hardcore cars, over-restored, correctly restored, um, just amazing cars. Uh, I can't say enough about it. It was pretty cool. Out in the lobby, they had uh, my buddies from uh, Classy Design Concepts. He had his uh, Resto Mod 69 Shelby there. Pretty cool car, Gulfstream Aqua, four-speed. Uh, well, I think it had a four-speed. It might have been a five in it. But it had a 428 motor. Fairly original car, but he redid the car, and it looks absolutely stunning. And then one of the cars that was in the, out in the display was uh, 
Tommy Ivo's uh, four-engine uh, Buick Riviera, like late 60s, 66, 67, that was there. That was on display. That was cool. The Starskin Hutch car, the uh, um, Pontiac used in Rockford Files, that was there on display. So there were a number of celebrity cars, Cobras. But the one car in particular that got everybody's attention, it was probably the car that, in one hand, it was it, it was totally out of place, but on the other thing, it was the coolest thing there. It was a one-off, very rare Ford GT40. So that's all I'm going to say about that car right now, because... That is going to be our feature discussion this evening, later this evening on the show. Now, on having said that, I think Tommy's going to fire up the stereo. We're going to go right to uh, some music. Here's some cool, groovy music out of the 60s. What's it called? Richards and the Lion and the Young Lions or something like that? I listen to Sirius Radio, Garage Band, the Little Stevie's Underground. Check it out. It's really cool. This is a far-out song. Dig it. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back. the best brews in Tampa Bay at Dunedin Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunedin Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunedin Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunedin. Visit them online at dunedinbrewery.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. We're back and you're turned, uh, turned, turned, tuned into Nostalgic Radio Cars. Um, yeah, definitely check out uh, Little Stevens uh, Underground and uh, the Garage Band music, and it's pretty far out stuff. And the reason I play a lot of that stuff is because I'm a product of the 60s and I dig that stuff and I'm a lousy guitarist and I love music. And uh, some some uh, spirit pilot called up earlier, but I don't have time to talk to him this time. But I told him, I said, uh, I'll catch him on air, off air. I think he plays guitar too. And I think, I think I said, if you can comp me a flight, then I might change my opinion on spirit air. But hey, they stink. Um, having said that, you don't hear me badger people too much, but I'll tell you what, I was, I cannot tell you how infuriated I was. I was absolutely livid. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just pathetic how corporate America, there's no, you know, nobody's nice, nobody's congenial, uh, enough of that crap. Um, anyway, so, uh, I can't talk enough about this, um, muscle car and Corvette Nationals. Now there was one segment there and we're going to have one of the guys come on the show and talk about, but this was the really cool thing. I just, uh, yesterday I had to buzz down to, uh, Sarasota to, uh, I'm going to give these guys a shout out, shameless plug for these guys. Ideal auto sales down there in, uh, in Venice, Florida. And they got some pretty cool cars down there. Okay. And I had to go down there and I had to do a PPI on a 69 Shelby. Just so happens a GT350. And it also was Gulfstream Aqua. Gulfstream Aqua is the color that is one of the colors that I truly like on, on 69 Shelby's. It's also available on Cougars. It's a Lincoln Mercury color. And the name of my company, which is Gulfstream Motorsports, actually, or, the, that's the origin. Gulfstream comes from Gulfstream Aqua. Um, that's the true story. 
Anyway, so I had to go down there and praise this car. But this uh, this group that they have up there at the uh, Muscle Car Nationals in Corvette deal was uh, called um, Vintage Certification. And the, one of the cars that they had there was a 69 Mach 1. 7,000-mile, one-owner car, been parked since 1974. About as original as you can get. Even the Ford experts, the gurus were there. I spent three hours on this car. But these guys came over. It was a heck of a learning experience. And that's the beauty of this. If you're really truly into cars and you're into the nuts and bolts side of it, you know, and the correctness and the originality of it, not necessarily that you have to do that to your car because it's kind of costly, but if you got to survive an original car, this is the place to go because you learn, learn, learn. I mean, they had Corvettes there, had 442s there, had uh, a bunch of Camaros there. There was a Camaro there, 69 SS. R, not an SS, but an RS that w- was ordered with a 307 two-barrel, but had all the options. I mean, power windows, uh, RS package, flip-flop headlights, the gauge package, uh, air conditioning, just kind of an unusual car. And that's the kind of stuff. And people say, oh, they didn't make that. Well, they did make that. You don't know, because back in the old days, you could order a car a la carte. So that was pretty cool. But at any rate, so the certification group there, they will actually they charge you 500 bucks. They will put your car up on a rack. And they will sit there and get the experts. So if you get a Ford, a Chrysler, a Chevrolet, a Pontiac, uh, you know, uh, whatever, they have somebody walking around there that is probably top notch and the probably the most respected and uh, accredited guy in the field of whatever vehicle you own there to actually cor- to judge your car. And I mean, we're talking about we're getting down to nuts, bolts, brackets. Uh, just it's it's mind-boggling i'm going to go into detail but right now i think what i have to do is i have to fire up the stereo again because we got to get ready for our, our next guest but definitely google muscle car and corvette nationals truly truly you don't hear me rant and rave about really cool events too often and uh, but this is a new one for me and it's definitely needs to be on your bucket list especially if you're really serious about your car and you want to learn something about it and just like i said there were 600 cars there so it's just all kinds of stuff drag cars they had all kinds of classes there they had seminars there they had uh uh, there are some celebrities walking around there. Courtney was walking around there. Courtney was signing autographs, and uh, a lady by the name of Shara, she used to race AMCs back in the day. In fact, I invited her to come on the show. So, anyway, enough of that. Let's go fire up the stereo. Let's play a little uh, Buffalo Springfield since we're into the 60s hippie thing going on here. And uh, hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Hidden Cars. Here's a little, uh, what's the name of this song? Tommy? Special Care. Special Care. Oh, all right. Hey. Don't touch the dial. You're tuning into Nostalgic Radio Cars. We will be right back. bid to buy Enzo Ferrari's company in 1962 failed, Ford President Henry Ford II decided he would conquer the Italian racing king on the world's most prestigious automotive stage, Le Mans. As we'll see, in June of 1966, the Ford GT40 not only won the 24 hours, it dominated. Well, hello, this is uh, Jackie X. You're listening to uh, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back. And yeah, you are listening to uh, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And that was a real live liner from the famous Jackie X. And uh, he also drove a Ford GT40. Now, while we're on the subject of GT40s, it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. I just met this gentleman at the uh, Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals up in uh, Chicago. I'm delighted to welcome the show. A gentleman that is a uh, well-seasoned uh, Shelby collector and the owner of the very rare Allen Mann prototype GT40. I'm delighted to welcome the show this evening, Rex Meyer. Rex, how you doing? Rex here. I'm doing good. 
So I just got your bio a few minutes ago, and it sounds like uh, we're pretty close in age, and we built models, and we also own a few Shelbys. Although you beat me, you trumped me twice because you've had an AC four twenty seven Cobra, and now you got the probably the most uh, recognizable, most unique uh, Ford GT on the planet. You have one of two, only known, I guess, the only one to exist, the aluminum bodied uh, prototype GT forty, right? The other car definitely exists, but I think it's still in a fiberglass form, which is what uh, racer Paul Hawkins had transformed the car into so he could do sports racing. So the car is definitely a great race car, great history uh, out there still racing on the track. So it, it, it does fully exist, but just I don't believe it has the aluminum body on it anymore. So tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and how the – give us a little story on the GT40 because it's very, very interesting, and I think my listeners would be fascinated. Oh, I guess the uh, the recent movie is uh, probably the best way to kind of follow along or, or say, but uh, the GT40 started kind of out of a feud with Ferrari and Enzo Ferrari there and Henry Ford II, which goes by the name of Deuce, I think, in most of the slang terms. But uh, Ford was uh, going to go racing, and they was able to buy uh, the Lola car, which was uh, the forerunner of the GT40 platform, and that was their test bed as a Ford small block rear mid-engine type car. And from that development that was done there already, uh, Ford bought all the, well, there's three cars, I guess, but they put things together where they started building their own GT40 platform at a company they created called Ford Advanced Vehicles, and that was based in England. And some of that was really because England is uh, full of job shops. They've got small one- or two-car garage-type size businesses that, that will specialize in a particular segment of the race car and through all those little shops they can build a race car very good very good quality and really very fast so england is kind of the go-to place when it comes to foreign uh choices and then all the race tracks are closer too. all the fi run you know tracks run very very close to that european area so it all made sense to go after a european-based race shops which were in england so the start started really with ford getting an attitude with ferrari and enzo not wanting to sell to them and uh he was going to go after enzo the deuce and he did so they started the project is basically no cost limits at all all you know efforts were put towards making a fast race car and they went uh gung-ho so tell us the story on your car Oh, my car, as far as the history of the car, mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, actually a thought brainchild of Alan Mann, who uh, was running a lot of the uh, Shelbys and Daytona Coupes, and they ran a T5, was the Mustang was the name of the Mustang in Europe, and they actually developed, for all practical purposes, the uh, suspension and modifications that were transferred into the Shelby GT350, uh, Alan Mann had done it first in Europe when they were racing, but they were racing the all the courses over there with uh, Lotus uh, Cortinas and the smaller sedan cars, because that was what was popular and it's very competitive. And uh, the Mustang come along, and there's a few ca- you know the Falcons that they raced. And uh, Alan Mann proposed after a couple of uh, years with attempting to build a, a good GT40 and actually failing and. Uh, 64 and 65, but Alan Mann sent a uh, letter to Ford asking if he could build a couple of the lightweight cars, being the one that I have now, and that was late 65. And he had all of the cost and estimates of time and proposals of weight savings and how much they could actually cut off the car weight and still uh, have a viable race car, and, uh, and Ford gave him the thumbs up. It was the best thing they had going at the time. So they manufactured two cars in the race shop, Allen Man Racing. So this car and AM2, AM1 is my car, AM2, uh, the second sister car, were built and put together to go racing at Sebring. And uh, it's like anything else, you know, that time and limitations probably left the cars not quite prepared like they should. And neither of the cars were able to finish the Sebring race from uh, one had a clutch failure and the other had a valve engine failure. Uh, the next event on the calendar to go was uh, April, Le Mans test days, and that's Le Mans France. 
and they went over there and ran. And uh, my car, the GT40 aluminum lightweight, was uh, fourth fastest of all the cars there, Ferraris, Fords, big block, small block, everything. Mm. So, you know, potentially was, you know, able to do as good as what (coughs) they expected it to or even better. But uh, it is actually the lightest GT40 ever built, so potentially the fastest. And that's when Shelby and Ford and Ferrari was developing the big block. Well, the seven-liter engine and cars was going to be what was going to trump everything. So this was put last year, and the small block lightweight car was never raced again as far as Ford Motor Company. Uh, now, it was developed one step further into a 427. Uh, they put a 427 in with Weber's, had automatic transaxle, and uh, Ford paid for all that testing, and Holman Moody did the work and did the conversion. But uh, just with uh, the timing of the Mark IV J car chassis, and some of the drivers being killed in accidents on track. They didn't really have the, the staffing to uh, put in the cars, and they also was wanting to push the Ford J car since it was American-built, and as many as American drivers they could put in it was their plan, and that worked. Six to seven, they come out in one. So overall, what they was trying to do, they've accomplished it in great form. But that was the full Ford history with this car as far as on-track racing. It made one race at Sebring, the Le Mans test days. It was put into a test car with a 427. And at that point, uh, it stayed at Holman Moody then. So your car was then at Holman and Moody for a while, and then where did it go from there? Uh, it went into uh, work, I guess, with Firestone. Uh, they uh, actually used this car to uh, test airplane tires, high-speed airplane tires. Really? Uh, uh, for landing, and uh, that would have been quite a sight, I guess. And uh, I don't know if it was leased or sold and bought back, but it came through Firestone and back to Holman Moody. It was loaned to a, a local racing legend, I guess, Buck Fulp, uh, a couple times for him just to borrow and use in that uh, area, Charlotte area. And then uh, finally in August of 68, it was sold off to a, a private owner, uh, Douglas Champlin from uh I guess the Air Museum fame. He had all kind of warbirds and airplanes and things that way, and he was in Oklahoma at the time. Okay, and then from there? Well, when he had it, the car was involved with a, an accident, I guess, and uh, a couple of kids got in the thing to go out and go for a joyride and didn't make it back to the house. Hmm. So it, it was wrecked, and uh, that didn't, you know, obviously it wasn't stolen. But uh, they were out in the joyride, wrecked the car, and uh, they, they never ran again. That was, you know, late 68. He didn't have it very long. And I went through a couple owners. I ended up being the next guy to, to buy it that's going to work on it. And I actually bought it out of New Jersey. And it was a complete car. Uh, but it uh, it was bent. And I guess we'll leave that part of the story at that. But <laughs> it was com- completely there. You know, it was taken apart and been inventoried. And I checked the inventory to see what was and what wasn't there and what was usable and if there was critical parts that was missing, and there was not, it was all there. And uh, the actual main reason I bought the car, I guess, was twofold. The fact that it was all there, and nobody could say, I own this part of it or built a car from these pieces. But uh, also that the uh, door, the driver's door, had the illumination light on it to show that it was a 24-hour race car. And uh, at the time, my confusion was, I didn't know that the AM serial numbers even existed, and the aluminum body was something that most of us GT40 wannabe owners didn't know existed. So a couple of things there is not quite what we planned to see. And uh, the rest of the GT40s have either a 100, a 1,000, and there's the three Mirages that were a 10,000 type of numerical sequence. So the couple coolers there were so honest was the AM numbers and, of course, the aluminum body. But uh, bought it. Uh, sometime later, I found out from world expert Ronnie Spain that it actually was the lightweight aluminum Allen Man GT40, and he exclaimed it was AM1. And all of a sudden, you know, now I know I've got a real cards, aluminum cards, one or two lightweights, and gives us some, you know, leverage to really look and search and find more pictures and more details and more documentation. So as we attempt to build the car back into a real, you know, road race car that we had a direction. We knew what we was working with and knew what to look for, where before we was just looking for what the, the AM letters meant and why it was aluminum. And so Ronnie Spain is the world leader in 
knowledge for these cars because he lived very close to the factory over there and watched all the cars come and go as they were built and assembled and wrecked and rebuilt. Uh, so the GT40 world relies upon Ronnie for authentication of a lot of the situations in cars especially. The uh, When you got the car, so this was uh, roughly, what, ni- late 70s, right? May of 1982. May of 1982. Okay. So yeah. then take us through the process. So at that point in time, you're committed to the car, you're passionate about it, and was your original intention to put the car together as as correct and as original as possible, or were you having thoughts, well, I'm going to make a nice driver out of this car? I mean, what was going through your mind at the time? Before we really knew the exact history of the car and exactly where it fit with the uh, the history of Allen Man Racing and AM1 and the short history it did have on the track, I had planned to put uh, a bigger Gurney Westlake aluminum head motor in the car, and... We had no pictures to really go back and say, here's what we're going to build it like, because we just couldn't find anything, didn't know what the car, you know, history was, what its life had been. And then once we found out what it was, yes, my change, you know, did occur. We planned one way, went another way. But uh, then we started getting pictures and realized, well, here's what we got to build it to, because now we know. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to think something through as far as what we want to do. Here's what we need to do. And the, uh, the number 16, as the car is painted today back to its original configuration from 66, that was still actually on the car. There was a part of the car up front that Holman Moody had modified and covered up the 16. And once we pulled that aluminum sheet off, right there it was. So we had original paint from 1966 that had the gold and the hand-lettered black paint showing the number 16 on it. And that pretty well was our decision right there in a nutshell. Once we found that, um, we had a target as far as the build date. It was still a Ford factory team car at that time. We had the pattern of the 16. We knew exactly what the color codes and things should be just by matching it up. And all my decisions were so far right then. We just knew right away it had to be the number 16 from Le Mans France test days. Interesting. The, um, how long after you acquired the car... Did all this become apparent and that you realized that you had this significant car? It was about a year and a half. Okay. Uh, Ronnie didn't come into the States all that often. Uh, he's uh, a truck driver. He said he drives the lorry. So he's mm-hmm. a truck driver there in the Scotland, England area. And uh, he doesn't uh, travel a lot. But uh, it was about a year and a half later he came here and declared, you know, we found AM1. And uh, during that time, we was looking for a few things, but didn't really know what to search for because you had all the GT40s to kind of pick through and uh, nothing really seemed to match. So it was just different enough that we knew what to look for in some areas and yet we didn't know the real details of the aluminum to really look for Allen Mann. We weren't looking for an Allen Mann race car during that time. Did you? How, how different is that car from uh, the later GT40s, the Mark IIs or the Mark Ones because it started out as a Mark I, but in other words, is the tub the same, or and and the and just the exterior bodywork, which I believe on the GT40 cars is fiberglass. But is that all interchangeable, or is everything on that car unique to itself? The uh, it's a lot alike. The it tub, uh, starting at the 1000 series of GT40, they uh, they started out actually with uh, 13 prototypes that were 100 numbers, and that's where the roadsters were. And then they got into the uh, the lineage of uh, road coupes, race coupes, the Mark IIs and the Mark III. They built three, uh, I think, were uh, left-hand drive and four right-hand drive. I might have that backwards, but there was seven Mark III's total. And uh, of the Allen Mann cars, just two of these lightweights. But all of those tubs from the 1,000 production numbers through about 1085, 1086, I'm not sure where they actually stopped. I think it's supposed to be 1085 was the last tub that was sold. Those are fully interchangeable with just a lot of small modifications with braces and widgets and things that way. Uh, This car was built into a Mark II and had those braces and strengthening areas put onto it, but it also, through the lightening process of the car, uh, had 
dozens and dozens of areas where they had cut out steel, uh, not put in panels, you know, complete panels at all for like the seat structure. There's nothing underneath the seats in this car. Uh, and that was a matter of making it lighter, you know, not really different, but just lighter. Uh, that that series of cars all would be the same tub. The Mark II is essentially the same tub with just braces and more gussets put in it. So the, the similarities are very, very much the same through that series. Then, of course, the Mark IV, uh, that was where they went into the J appendix. And that's completely different. Uh, I don't think there's anything interchangeable at all between that and the Mark II other than the engine, essentially. So that was a complete changeover, body, body style, frame, everything. So the Mark One is a small block. The Mark Two was the 427, and the Mark Three is what? That was a street car, wasn't it, basically? Yeah, the, the Mark Three is a Mark One with extended nose, body section, and extended tail section, and then a different window to get a little bit more ventilation inside the car, and uh, dressed up more for street. Did they race yeah. them any Mark Threes? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but okay. I'm sure I'll say that. Some guys are jumping up and down saying, oh, yeah, I remember the one. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't watch those that much that well, but uh, very easy could have been because uh, it was still the same chassis tub by all means, So, uh, but not that I'm aware of. You know, it's interesting because the Mark III, when they kind of, it looks like somebody actually stepped on it, no disrespect to the Ford GT40 and the people that own them, but, you know, you look at the Mark I and the Mark II, that's a stunning car. The Mark IV, obviously, is this really amazing car. Um, but the Mark III, the street version, it just, yeah, it just looks out of proportion. In fact, doesn't the Mirage take a lot after the Mark III? No, the Mirage is just a narrow windshield and cab structure. They oh, reduced the frontal, yeah, they reduced the frontal area as far as regulations. And in fact, the contract request that I have from Alan Mann, he was asking to have that done. That was still. Uh, a viable thing they were going to do. And this was potentially going to be the first narrow windshield, mirage-looking type windshield, but they ran out of time. Sebring was coming. They ran out of time. So it was their month to be the first car with a narrow windshield. Didn't make it. The Mirages did. So, uh, but yeah, that that was a windshield-only change that I know of. I'm pretty sure the nose is still exactly the same, the fiberglass nose. Okay. Um, but the Mirage, they only made those... For a short period of time, and then what? Later they got picked up again by um, uh, the gentleman out in Arizona, and they built some more Mirages, or do I have the story wrong there a little bit? Help me out here. Yeah, and on the Ford side and the racing side, three were built, Okay, and uh, they were successful. They were good cars, but uh, two of them were, uh, I believe, converted back to the regular full windshield GT40, and one stayed a Mirage, so okay. they didn't have a very long life on the track. And uh, I think it was just a matter that they might have uh, changed that ruling back, I believe, to where it became a non-usable type of body. Uh, but no, I, I don't know of any other Mirages being built. I think only one does exist of those three. All right, well, what was Harley Cluxton involved with? Didn't he have something to do with the Mirage, like in the 70s or something like that? He picked, uh, he, he built a few of those or somehow got the rights to the Mirage? Or do I have the story wrong? I'm not, I can't remember now because there's a lot of stuff on these cars. Yeah, he was heavily involved in a lot of the GT40s all the way through their uh, their afterlife after yeah. Ford had them. But, uh, I don't recall him building more Mirages. Okay. You had a 427 Cobra at one point in time, and you had some Shelbys. Tell us a little bit about some of those cars. Yeah. Oh, uh, the very uh, start of it, I guess, uh, even before that, as uh, a youngster, I started out with uh, needing to go fast and <laughs> I had a go-kart when I was a kid and it was never fast enough. And as you're uh, racing slot car models and things like that, that you're building, you're always uh, trying to get the fastest car and the fastest version. And, uh, through slot cars, I became acquainted with the Daytona coupes and Testarossa Ferraris and of course the GT40 slot cars. And, um, that got me interested in the Ford side of it. And I had a model a Ford really was my first car uh, as a young kid, and that all was the Ford-based vehicles. So I, you know, got hit with the Ford Hammer pretty early in my <laughs> life. And uh, just the more you look for things, well, how can I go faster? And there was no way to make a Model A go faster and be safe with the frame they had in them. So I looked for T-Birds and had one T-Bird, and that led into a 69 Shelby. And I bought it in uh, 1973. 
one of those things where we went to uh, go just look at the car to see what it was. I'd never seen a Shelby before like that. And uh, as we're there talking and just looking at it, the deal finally comes out where the kid just wants to make it go away. And we bought uh, the very first Shelby I had for $1,800. Oh, wow. And uh, the 40,000-mile car. And, of course, I drove it a lot, drove it to high school and drove it to college and ended up, uh, you know, just adding a Shelby a year after that and uh, bought four Shelbys in a row. And then the next step up was a Cobra. And I found that there was a 427 streetcar Cobra locally and uh, bought that, which was my silver car. And it was like an 8,000-mile car from new and very, very wow. original, very good car. And that was uh, actually what led me into the GT40. Uh, we showed the uh, the silver Cobra heavily and uh, just almost took a year off and showed it. And we was uh, in events from everywhere, and I guess on the east side of the Mississippi River, but won several national shows and just weekend after weekend was looking to see where we could go with it. And uh, one of the last shows I took it to was uh, 1981 down at Louisville to a big Carl Casper show down there. And he was in a Shelby American display with, I think, eight other Mustang Shelbys and one other Cobra. Well, that other Cobra was 3002 best serial number, and it was a race car with a white roundel meatball where the number goes. And I'm there with first time showing my silver streetcar Cobra. And uh, as a young kid and too much vinegar and sauce, uh, nobody seen my car. Everybody walked past it to go look at the race car. And uh, I left there upset. I left there with an attitude. You know, so I guess if a bad attitude can get you something, it got me the <laughs> GT40. Uh, I hate to repeat that with anything else I do in life, but uh, left there with a plan to find a Ford race car, not specifically a GT40, it's a, a Ford race car. And uh, I looked for other Cobras and looked for some Indy cars and anything that was Ford-powered race car. And uh, finally come up to a point where May, the next year, 82, where I was at the Indiana, Indiana SAC meet or Shelby American Automobile Club meet there in Brown County, Nashville, uh, a friend of mine, Jim Coles, with Shelby Parts and Restoration. There goes a plug for Jim. Uh, he and, said, and "Make sure you say he's in Green Bay, Wisconsin, too." Okay, it's in Green <laughs> Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, Jim Coles, Shelby Parts and Restoration. He he was the guy. I yeah. Mean, I, if it wasn't for that contact, I got a very good suspicion I'd never owned this car. But that very day, we uh, without internet and all, we got a hold of the owner's phone number, called him from the A Martin Lodge there in the state park and uh, made arrangements to go out the next day and uh, look at it. And it was in New Jersey, and um, we drove out there in one of the three-door Pinto runabouts, so we was in a little <laughs> bug, and, of course, it was red. How about that? Red car, red car. But uh, drove all the way out there and looked at it and looked at what all we could and was still confused, you know, and started doing some research and didn't really come up with anything. But then by Thursday that week, um, just had enough gumption and little bit, I guess, if you want to say gambling or risk on that light being on the side of the car, but being completely there, being my two motivating go-do-it-now type of response. But uh, the cars were creeping up in value, you know, not real fast, but it was kind of one of those things, well, now is the timeline. You know, if I don't get it now, I may not make it. So it's a little bit of a, a risk, uh, not knowing just what it was with that AM serial number and things, but uh, did okay as as it all came out. You know, we had uh, enough knowledge of the cars, and I had a parts book. They actually sold a parts manual uh, that you could buy and have, you know, to hold and look through, and you know, you could see that the car had the primary stuff was there. And uh, even on the car now, uh, virtually every single piece from the steering wheel center that says Ford GT down to the four knockoffs. Every mechanical piece on that car was there, except for, I think, we had to change one tie rod end, and there's one trailing link of the suspension in the rear that was bent that we did straighten, but then replaced it. But those are all the same exact parts that I bought that came from Le Mans 66. So part for component for what you expected to have, the very complete car chassis-wise, and uh, it's, um, you know, it panned out. You know, we got something that was really a treasure. Let me ask you a question real quick. we got about a minute and a half left real quick. You won an award at Pibble Beach this year. What what was the award? Uh, it was a second place in class, and 
the way they do things out there, uh, it's very prestigious just to even get on the grass and be accepted. Mm-hmm. So when we got that acceptance at Pebble Beach, it was a win already, and almost had a inclination not to go because it's a lot of work to pack up everything and plan and have that long of a trip with uh, trailering all the way out there and being set up for the show and not having a problem with just the simple fact of moving the car, just transportation to getting out there. But uh, my uh, my wife and kids encouraged us, you know, that we should go, and that was a good thing because we got it in. Pebble Beach is, uh, you know, announced that it's the most prestigious car show in the world, and uh, so with the car just being done fresh off of a restoration, it was obviously the time to go because uh, every day the car has a chance to get, you know, that next dent, scratch, neck, <laughs> or whatever, and it's just downhill from here on out as far as condition until you go back to freshen it up again but just uh the car's pristine condition now you know it shows extremely good uh the men up there the judges at the uh muscle car and uh corvette national group up there they actually judged it 999 points out of a thousand uh they found a little bit of a smudge on one of the oil caps so uh, (laughs) they took a point off and they said that's the highest point car they've ever seen in 11 years of all the hundreds of cars they've seen up there i guess thousands of cars actually wouldn't be but yeah, so it was uh, a right. good event at Pebble Beach, very good event. Excellent. Now, um, we're like right up against the clock, but I do want to tell everybody that if you want to see the spectacular Ford GT40 prototype, the car will be at Amelia Island this year in March, correct? Yes. Okay. Well, March the 8th, I think it is. March the 8th, okay. Mar- uh, Rex, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show this evening. I truly enjoyed it. Uh, great story. I look forward to seeing you again. I will be at Amelia Island. We'll kind of get together and talk a little bit more and share some more war stories, Shelby stories. But in the meantime, I want to thank my very special guest this evening, Rex Myers, uh, owner of the one of two Allen Man prototype GT40s alloy cars. So, uh, Rex, thank you very much, and take care. Thank you. Have a good evening. Okay. Oh, by the way, happy Thanksgiving to you. Oh, yeah. Happy Turkey Day. <laughs> Happy Turkey Day. All right. Good. Very good. Well, anyway, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Car this evening. Very interesting car. Very interesting gentleman. Great story. Remember, it's all about the story sometimes. It's the car and the story and the personalities associated with it. So go out there, find them, knock on them barns. In the meantime, don't forget to check us out every Tuesday night here on the Tantalk Radio Network for the most fascinating and legendary people in motorsports. And uh, I want to see some of the car shows this weekend. What we got going on? FLACarshows.com. Turkey Rod Run. That's uh, this weekend in Daytona. Dumpster County. Excuse me. Sumster Sumster County Swap Meet. And next month, next month for Christmas, we got a very special guest coming on the show, Gary Puckett from the Union Gap. So stay tuned. You want to find out where everything's going on? Check out Nostalgic Radio and Cars. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. I found an island in your arms, country in your eyes. Arms are changes, eyes are line. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. Break on through out. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.